And this particular longest conflict has lasted for over two decades, right from 1986, when President Museveni came to power, up to 2006, when the cessation of hostility was achieved. In the, among the international community, I think there was a feeling that there was a possibility in which rights could be uh, enumerated outside of the confines of the state. And now we're realizing the very, very hard limits of that and practice. From the University of Cambridge, welcome to the Declarations Podcast, Human Rights in the Real World. I'm Sarah Mohammed, And I'm Matt Moody. And boy, do we have a great episode for you today. One of our guests is Jackson Odong. He works at the Refugee Law Project at Mekurere University in Uganda. Particularly, he's a program manager for Conflict, Transitional Justice and Governance, and the center manager for the National Memory and Peace Documentation Center. Jackson is in Cambridge as a part of the Rethinking Transitional Justice from African Perspectives project, and he's here in order to get best practices, collaborations, and research relationships with the University of Cambridge. We're very lucky to have him on the program today. We're also in the presence of a good friend of the pod, Shama Ams. Uh, he's working on governance and constitutional reform in countries emerging from civil war right here at the Center of Development Studies, where he's a PhD student in his final year. In today's episode, he comes to us wanting to talk about the legal and social construction of citizenship in relation to human rights and refugees and rightlessness. And he'll be grappling with questions such as the line between immigrant and citizen, insider, outsider, uh, being merely a legal construction, or whether there are deeper sociological and political narratives that shape these. What implications do the dynamics of citizenship have towards an understanding of human rights, both within countries and in the international community? So we switched up the format for you today. I'm going to be speaking to Jackson, and Matt's going to be speaking to Shama, and we're putting this episode together in a really new and innovative way. We hope you like it. Totally not because it's a Sunday and nobody else is available, but hey, we gotta work with what we got. This is creativity, Matt. <laughs> That's it. Creativity, listeners. No, seriously. This is a really interesting episode, and I'm so stoked for you guys to be tuning in, so hopefully you'll enjoy it, and please get back to us with any feedback that you might have. As mentioned, we really appreciate your thoughts and your ideas, please do tweet us with them. We're at Declarations Pod, and we're always really keen to hear from you guys. Also, before we begin this episode, I want to announce officially that we are now on Anchor FM, um, where we have gathered a number of followers, and we're really excited to be working with them. So please go check us out on their platform and anywhere else where you find your podcast. Interesting guests, interesting format. Listen on. As a part of his work, Jackson collects testimonies from survivors of violence in Uganda and has created an archival database for research and policy purposes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jackson. Thank you. I would want to invite the public to look into one of the publications that Refugee Law Project did, which is available online, called The Compendium of Conflicts in Uganda. Mm -hmm. This book is a piece of research that was published uh, in 2014 that highlights the different types of conflicts. It kind of names over 125 different types of conflicts that have affected Uganda right from pre-colonial time to post-colonial time. Mm -hmm. And this particular longest conflict has lasted for over two decades, right from 1986 when President Museveni came to power, up to 
2006 when the cessation of hostility was achieved. But it should not be noted that this conflict has not been resolved. It is not ended because the cessation of, of hostilities only meant that the LRA, that marked the, the, the shift of the LRA out of northern Uganda. Mm -hmm. And they began causing a lot of atrocities in neighboring countries. Right. Central African Republic, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and in South Sudan itself. Mm -hmm. So this group continued more widely within the Great Lakes region. Mm -hmm. And the leader of this group is Joseph Cohen, mm -hmm. who remains at large. Mm -hmm. And a, a, a good number of his... Um, um, of, of his um, fighters are also at large. So nobody knows exactly how many they are. We have little information about where they are apparently, but they continue to wreak havoc within the Great Lakes region. So while Northern Uganda continues to experience relative peace or stability, as of 2006, cessation of hostilities agreement, People should know that the LRA conflict is far from over. Far from over. So that, that briefly is the context around different conflicts in Uganda. And all these conflicts, like I said, have created their own victims and for that matter, generations of victims mm -hmm. that when you speak to them, they say, well, we are victims of the UPA conflict. We are the victims of the LRA, we are the victims of colonial oppression, mm -hmm. we are victims of Karabojong cattle rustling, mm -hmm. you know, all these different pockets of conflicts. Now we have the most recent victims of the Kasese attacks, and, and all of them still yearn for justice. So that's how complex conflict is in, in Uganda. Uh, thank you very much, and I'm happy to join in, in this uh, beautiful uh, program. Uh, as already introduced, uh, I am Jackson and uh, I am a development and social justice activist academic and uh, a peace uh, building and transitional justice practitioner as well, working uh, within the field of forced migration and uh, transitional justice in post-war development in northern Uganda. And uh, through my work in northern Uganda, I've particularly with the Refugee Law Project, which is uh, part of or affiliated to the School of Law of Makere University. I have been at the center of um, strengthening and transforming uh, the Refugee Law Project's innovations, such as uh, the Memory Dialogues, as well as the Beyond Juba Project initiatives, uh, and more specifically, the National Memory and Peace Documentation Center what we often describe as Uganda's history clinic. Mm, Uganda's history clinic. So what are the kinds of memories that you capture in Uganda's history clinic? What is the work of the RLP and specifically the documentation project? So um, as Alia mentioned, the National Memory and Peace Documentation Center is a center that is uh, a historical memory initiative that was founded by the Refugee Law Project in collaboration with Kitgum District Local Government. And this is actually a living memorial to victims and, and survivors of the over two decades conflict. As you might know, there was a conflict between 1986 
to more or less 2006, there was an intense, uh, horrific conflict between the Lord's Resistance uh, Army and the government of Uganda that claimed hundreds, tens of thousands of lives and also displaced uh, close to 1.8 million people into internally displaced uh, persons camps. And the impact of this conflict has been so massive, it's been written about, and, and, and we are now embarking on a huge journey or path of healing these communities, of reconciling these communities, of gathering their testimonies, their conflict experiences, of documenting the various conflict events that have never been documented before, that have never been known. And, you know, by nature of this very conflict, there have been uh, multiple narratives relating to, to this conflict and no single narrative uh, in isolation of the other is actually comprehensive. So just to put it plainly, all these narratives are contested. So the Refugee Law Project, through this National Memorial Peace Documentation Center, has come into the center to do a lot of peace documentation, to transform the past experiences uh, into you know, resources that people can draw on to transform their now and the future. And it is also that unique space that actually promotes and celebrates Uganda's cultural heritage. So by looking at how communities were before the conflict and how they survived during the conflict and how they're trying to recover after the conflict. All these conflict experiences are documented and archived at the National Memory and Peace Documentation Center. And they, they, they enhance, on one hand, education. So very many researchers come and access this uh, database. But on the other hand, they are also therapeutic. The process of capturing these memories themselves is a process of healing people because they long for someone to hear them out, to listen to their story. And we found out that uh, the more we give people the opportunity to tell us uh, their conflict experiences, the more actually we understood the dynamics, the patterns, of the conflict that had never been known before. The first question is, what is the importance of memory? Why is it important to document and these testimonies and these narratives, apart from just the individual therapeutic process that it produces? Like, is there a wider societal importance to remembering? Oh yes, it is. And uh, actually, memory and remembrance do contribute to democratic governance. They do contribute to sustainable peace building and, and how just futures can be created. And the processes of memorialization, of course, are very important components uh, of a holistic transitional justice framework. And of course, they have become you know, an emerging uh, norm under the, uh, the, the customary international law. So we see you know, memory as very instrumental in helping communities be able to overcome, you know, the atrocious past because these experiences rest in them. They live with them. They remember 
these things, especially in the absence of justice, they remember as if it happened just yesterday. So helping communities create better ways of remembering, but not necessarily helping them forget. But to be able to transform their conflict experiences into powerful memories, for me, is very important. So this this is a very important important bit about memory that shouldn't be neglected. Mm -hmm. Because I've always wondered, and the question I've always asked myself is that, can the past be avoided? Can we talk about the future and ignore the past? And in the question of Northern Uganda, where people are still yearning for justice, they recount their past in the quest for justice. So perhaps if justice is given, then maybe they have a higher chance of transforming their past experiences into something else which is progressive. Otherwise, for now, we begin to see the past as present, especially also where in the context of transitional justice where there is no transition, you know, and, and people are still living under the same more or less conditions that they experience during conflict. They still experience domestic violence in their everyday life. They still experience oppression in their everyday life. They still experience torture in their everyday life. They still experience anger in their everyday life. They, they still experience starvation, famine, all these things that remind them of their despicable lives while in the camps, of their survival lives while in the bush, you know, all the things kind of trigger very uh, bad memories and, and taming that is very important. So you're talking about the very, the different kinds of trauma that people experience, the everyday interpersonal violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, as well as violence related to the conflict uh, conflict-related traumas. I'm wondering during what kind of memories people tend to relate as the most poignant when it comes to the capturing process of um, the National Memory Archive? Like how do people understand these kind of different violences next to each other? Okay, not to use the technical words, perhaps I would say the center has approximately 50 terabytes of, uh, of conflict experiences both in audio and video form and the we've captured uh, and, and stored over 1560 for instance audio uh, recordings relating to testimonies with about 7,000 photos plus and, and a number of newspaper clippings but when you look into uh, these this memories what they entail the, the number one some of these memories relate to the different massacres that happened in northern Uganda. So as you might know, uh, the conflict in Uganda has not just been a conflict by the Lord's Resistance Army and government. Mm -hmm. There's been widespread conflict mm -hmm. right from pre-colonial time up to post-colonial time. Uganda has gone through seasons of conflicts constitutional instability and all this has caused massive human suffering mm -hmm. so the, the kind of uh, experiences people share with us relate to their wounds they relate to the injuries they have 
in relate to untreated wounds. Some of them still live with uh, bullet uh, bullets fragments in their bodies, retained bullets, bomb splinters. They do have this uh, in their bodies and therefore also uh, are still struggling to heal. They, they look forward to opportunities like uh, medical rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So the experiences are associated with that pain, how they, for instance, were sodomized, you know, how the men in northern Uganda were raped, how women in northern Uganda were raped, how children were tortured, abducted. So the experiences relate to all these dynamics, uh, including sometimes stumbling on uh, rough experiences in the bush, you know, hiding in thickets, uh, being able to move from one country to the other, you know, being able to to be subjected to carrying heavy luggage. So those forms of torture that have now impacted on their physical livelihoods, you know, and, 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 and created some disabilities in them. They also talk about the experiences you know, there are good experiences in the bush. It's not just about the bad ones, you know. They talk about how they survived, what they were eating in the bush. Their adventures how. as well. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So all these experiences, and, and young people have very interesting memories too. They draw pictures about uh, airplanes, helicopters, hospitals, you know. But a lot of it also relates to, if you look into these pictures, you begin to see, you know, blood you know they have a lot of blood split spills and droppings you know people's heads cut off so it relates to the exposure you know to these processes of murder you know burials there's so many mass graves that are scattered within uh within the country so all these uh shape people's experiences that we are we have archived so I guess the question then becomes, um, with these testimonies, taking it forward, there's a long-standing conversation in the field of transitional justice that deals with justice after atrocity, how the questions of settling the past, the questions of what to do with memory, that has to do with the distinction between local forms of justice, customary justice, and also more formalized justice, justice through trials, justice through tribunals, justice at the international level. Um, has any of those kind of conversations come up and how do you kind of relate this to the Ugandan case? Well, in Uganda, uh, it's, it's good to note that for, for a while now, the, the different mechanisms that have been deployed to help uh, the communities overcome the past, to deal with the past injustices, they have been there, and uh, from about just after independence, all up to 2006, a lot of that uh, have been more of uh, offshoots from state-led processes. Mm -hmm. So all these initiatives relating to, for instance, um, uh, commissions of inquiry into enforced disappearances in 19. Uh, 72 and another commission subsequently on, 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 on the same um, relating to past gross human rights violations uh, prior to 1986, you know, that were commissioned after 
the current president took over power and and there have also been a number of unity governments for instance proposals for unity government in in 1979 and and also we had uh, military commissions that were set up to kind of transform the military we also had uh, tools like elections being deployed to be able to help people say well we're transitioning from these periods where there there have been uh, turmoil and and uh, brutal takeover of power into more uh, democratic dispensations. So again, there have also been aspects to do with peace deals and ad hoc amnesties. Mm. So, for instance, the 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 the, the different rebel groups, about over twenty eight of them, and many more that I can't count. Uh, some of them government negotiated. You know, we have the Peche Peace Accord and a number of them that were signed between the current government and so many other uh, groups that were fighting in the name of justice. Mm -hmm. So these were some of the state-led transitional justice initiatives, but they were never conclusive. They never dealt with the question of the past satisfactorily. I would actually say they all failed Mm -hmm. with these already uh, planted seeds uh, of colonialism you know, of hatred, of marginalization, of divisions that have continued to affect people and create conflict. So in 2006, following the, of course, not to forget the the ICC indictment itself in 2005. The ICC indictment of... The International Criminal Court's indictment of the top uh, five uh, rebel commanders, Mm -hmm. right? LRA commanders. The... and, and, And... but the Juba peace process in 2006, there was a space to be able to bring government and the Lord's Resistance Army to a negotiation, kind of opened more space for wider transitional justice uh, initiatives to be deployed in northern Uganda and broadly in Uganda. Mm-hmm. So we began seeing especially active involvement of civil society and now we continue to see more of the civil society-led transitional justice uh, processes those things like memorization how do we remember the the dead how do we commemorate the past especially the different uh, massacres that have happened Uh, things to do with uh, memory dialogues that refugee law project continues to do as a form of you know uh Enhancing local-level truth-telling uh, uh, processes, things to do with physical repair. I did mention that people still living with their uh, bullet uh, remains in their bodies. So aspects like documentation mm. to be able to create a record that helps for future uh, transitional justice processes. Mm-hmm. And so all these have been mechanisms, but I would still say that in the absence of a transitional justice policy. Mm -hmm. All these mechanisms seem to be operating but yielding less effect Mm -hmm. because there's no overarching government policy that is kind of helping hold all these mechanisms accountable that is meant to be able to bring some benchmarks for evaluation of these uh, mechanisms. So So the state is missing in a sense. Exactly. Missing in action. It, It is. So in a way... Even the financing of these kind of mechanisms is limited, is dependent on donor funding. 
and, and whatever is deployed by the state tends to be mixed up with other uh, development initiatives. So there's a, a confusion between development and reparations, for instance. So we tend to have a misunderstanding of the peace, recovery and development uh, plan, an initiative that was you know, hatched to, to kind of rehabilitate northern Uganda, being confused as a, a form of reparations, mm -hmm. and yet explicitly not made clear in the beginning. So there's that lack, um, I would say, this, that inadequacy of legal frameworks, so kind of like is also relating to a dissatisfaction within our justice systems. So, moreover, in a situation where there is limited appreciation of the existing local justice mechanisms, mm -hmm. I, I should have mentioned that actually within the local community, traditional leaders mm -hmm. continue to, to apply uh, traditional practices to be able to heal communities. So the use of matuput, you know, the drinking of the bitter herb, as a reconciliation process, as a way of bringing people together as a way of uh, bringing to light the past about the conflict, you know, are being used. The, the processes like... Uh, Can you tell us a bit more about Matoput? So Matoput is ideally a transitional justice process domestically that communities are drawing on to help them deal with the past. So what happens often in this traditional practice is that the, the, the disputing uh, parties, if there's a conflict, by the way, this, this um, in short, it's a very long process mm -hmm. that is always deployed when one party kills another. Mm -hmm. So when death has occurred, the aggrieved party takes this complaint to a council of elders, which also has representation of women. Mm -hmm. And this council of elders registers this complaint and invites the different parties to explain exactly what happened, circumstances that led to this. And they do go ahead to investigate on this complaint. Mm -hmm. So a lot happens behind the scene, uh, ranging from uh, investigations, and also processes of truth-telling where they bring the parties together and they speak to the crime that was committed. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, they agree, you know, on the amount of compensation. So there's a high, you know, the, the affected uh, or the perpetrator has to admit uh, the crime committed. And this crime is actually not just seen as individual. It mm -hmm. is seen as communion. Mm -hmm. So the clan of the, of the perpetrator and the clan of the victim often come together in these negotiations mm -hmm. and then they pay, the whole clan pays uh, reparations, compensation mm -hmm. in form of either monetary or symbolic because their, their choli culture, for instance, does not uh, uh, have any equivalent of, of life. So they only try to attribute it to a few number of heads of cattle, a few goats, and just to, to have someone feel the remorse and feel the pain of taking that life, mm -hmm. that it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And that is spread all over 
the clan. And then they later perform the ceremony that is often called matopot, okay. you know, that involves cutting, you know, the sheep coming, brought one sheep on one hand, a, a goat on the other, their heads are knocked and then they are slaughtered. And then the the they are then cooked, prepared, and their blood is mixed with this oput tree, which is the bitter herb, the roots of the bitter uh, oput tree. And then they are mixed together. And the two of parties, the victim and the perpetrator, partake of this uh, mixed uh, mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then just as an invitation, mm-hmm. symbolically to the pain of the victim. Right. That's why it's bitter hub mm-hmm. but also for the for for the parties to know that crime causes a lot of bitterness and separation mm-hmm. and therefore it should never be repeated I see. so the perpetrator kind of would never want to experience that process again mm-hmm. you know you would want to have that bitterness again mm-hmm. and then of course the sharing of the food that has been uh, you know prepared is symbolic of people coming back together, the restoration of previously broken relations, Mm -hmm. so then they can begin talking again, visiting each other again, but also an invitation of the wider community to come and be able to, what I call, be peacekeepers, you know? So they begin to monitor Mm -hmm. this reconciliation journey. And reconciliation in a Choli culture is seen as a journey. It's not a destination Mm -hmm. that... When Madhupur is done, then people reconcile. Mm-hmm. It marks, it's like a marker of reconciliation. But, but the process has begun. The and process, now... exactly. You know, so it's like it is set on. I don't know when it ends either because conflict will always arise. Right. But that process is always a constant reminder mm-hmm. of, the, of their past and say, well, we don't want to go through this again. Mm-hmm. You know, and it proves to be more impactful and useful because at the end of the day each time there's anything leading to coffee said you want to take us back to that thing again you know so it kind of like helps guarantee non-repetition and helping these communities check on each other it empowers the bystanders to become active participants in the peace maintenance process exactly and i think the entire process never spares bystanders as it is in the existing uh, prosecutorial justice mechanisms, right. you know, because by making the entire clan pay means that each time they would see such a crime being planned for, they are awake to it because they are going to be held accountable too. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about the individual who committed the crime. His family is part of this crime. His clan is part of this crime. His friends are part of this crime. Right. Even if they don't pay the compensation, they come and partake over this bitter mix concoction. Mm-hmm. And somehow, they're like, Mm-mm, this is not something that, you know, we want to encourage mm-hmm. in our community. Mm-hmm. So it kind of involves and holds bystanders too accountable. Mm-hmm. What's amazing about that is it, we have a very similar system called the Her system in Somalia. Right. Um, so effectively, uh, most of the Somali community is divided in amongst uh four major clan families and right. uh, some minority clans as well. Um, and so the Her system is actually a system that evolved um, amongst the pastoralist uh, elements of the clan um, who would 
Um, similar to how in Uganda you have the collective understanding of punishment as well as the collective understanding of reward, um, if someone from a member of a community is um, injured by someone from a member of a different community, it is incumbent upon the members of the, the, the perpetrating community um, or their dia group, the, the group to which they, the perpetrator belongs, to actually restitute or repay um, symbolically as well as materially um, for the crime that a member of their group has committed. And so a number of different things evolve, similar to how what you're explaining in um, Mato Aput, um, that the community itself becomes responsible for the actions of each one of its members. Um, and so the, not just to say we don't want to go back to uh, what you have done, but also to proactively prevent people from acting in a shameful way. Um, some acting in a way that would bring uh, disrepute, disregard, and shame upon the entire community. Um, and so it's the, when I think about um, the prospects of, in the aftermath of the Somali conflict, using the head system as a system of transitional justice, for example, I wonder whether it constitutes a very different kind of justice, a very different kind of understanding of what justice is um, in the post-conflict moment than the ways that we are used to thinking about post-conflict justice, like in the in the key of trials, in the key of truth commissions. Like, is the in use of these kind of uh, community-based mechanisms distinct, different? Does it speak to a kind of African almost conception of justice? Oh yes. Um, I think that the underlying principles of these traditional justice practices are more or less spread across Africa. And we must remember that before colonialism, the different communities, ethnic groups in Africa dealt with the question of justice in their own unique way. Mm -hmm. So Matu Put is actually the present day transitional justice process mm -hmm. for these communities. They never tolerated impunity. Mm -hmm. the, the structure, the inbuilt principles of uh, cleansing and welcoming, punishment, truth-telling and responsibility, reparations, uh, reconciliation and forgiveness are all embedded in these traditional justice practices, mm -hmm. as I just explained, and just as you attest to the experiences in Somalia. So all these, for me, have existed before. And they have existed through colonialism. Mm -hmm. Of course, they have been diluted. Mm -hmm. The practices have, have been diluted. Mm -hmm. We cannot pretend that they were not affected by colonialism. Exactly. In fact, there was a, a strong, and there is an ongoing tension between this traditional justice mechanism and religion. Right. And, and that has been there. Mm -hmm. And there has also been a big challenge and tension between these traditional justice mechanisms and modernity itself. You know, you know looking at uh, blood, you know, how do you mix blood and partake of it? That is a barbaric experience. It's not something in this era of human rights that should be enhanced. How do you, you know, slaughter animals for cleansing? That is not something that is progressive in this era of modernity how do you how do you uh, pay someone for a life exactly that's so the other thing as well all, all these things uh, are getting into tension with mm -hmm. uh, present day conceptualizations mm -hmm. 
of uh, modernization and human rights and creating a lot of clashes. But I think we should not lose these principles. We should not lose the logic mm. because the current international law and criminal laws have emerged from specific traditions, mm -hmm. including the wonderful Roman uh, law today emerged from the, the, the Roman traditions, mm -hmm. which was built around customs. So all these customary laws that have shaped today's legal systems, you know, have, have really been um, kind of like picked from these principles, mm -hmm. except the problem has been that we've been picking them on choice, mm -hmm. you know, and we fail to recognize the source. We fail to recognize mm -hmm. where these kind of uh, uh, mechanisms are coming from. Mm -hmm. How so, particular the idea of justice that they're predicated on is. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So for me, that that is the one which is problematic and causing a lot of problems and people like feel, no, I think prosecutorial justice, you know, these trials is not our way of work. But if you look at the process of Matuput itself, in its own form is a trial, mm. you know, because it has investigations being done, mm -hmm. it brings both parties together, it gives them room to be heard, and except they only don't have legal representation mm -hmm. to say, well, you need a lawyer, mm -hmm. but they trust in these parties to be able to be explicit. I want to go back specifically to the question of refugees and and where where they are situated in the in the course of conflict. Um, people who are forced um, from their homes, forced from their spaces, have a very specific relationship to memory um, because memory is the only way you can go home. You know, memory becomes the only way. You made a very excellent point earlier that um, when people recount their stories, this is definitely true with my experience of. Uh, people who went through the Somali Civil War, um, they speak as if it's something that just happened yesterday. Absolutely. Um, but for people who physically had to move, physically had to change the location in which they live, maybe the language in which they speak, the region that they now call home, the system in which their children are raised, um, that prevents presents very specific relationships to memory. So I was wondering if you could talk about what you're working on now related to forced migration and its relationship to transitional justice. So if, if uh, it's important to note that Uganda today is hosting the largest number of refugees on the continent. And wow. I think the third largest uh, in the whole world. And this population, if people need to know, is largely being hosted, especially the majority who are coming from South Sudan, following the conflict in South Sudan. They are currently being hosted in communities that were recently or in the recent past devastated by war. Right. So these vulnerable communities that are struggling to recover, that have all these memories that have not been dealt with, are now hosting another set of traumatized group of persons of concern mm -hmm. whose memories also matter to us. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to, to kind of interact with their memories to begin to think about what their future transitional justice needs are. So Uganda is at an intersection of dealing with this massive problem of forced migration on one hand and being able to fulfill transitional justice, mm. uh, which 
it's not really benefited these communities. Uh, so we are in that kind of dilemma now. And therefore, it's important for transitional justice to begin to kind of think about how, you know, for transitional justice actors rather, to begin to think about how can we transform transitional justice in its own original conceptualization mm -hmm. of being focused on the state and its citizens mm -hmm. to beginning to look at everybody else, everybody else. in that country mm -hmm. who, since the past is often present, are impacted by those implicit experiences of the past mm -hmm. that manifest in everyday life. Absolutely. And whose own actions do have an impact on realization of transitional justice for the host communities. Mm -hmm. So we begin to see tensions, for instance, between the host communities and refugees. We see these conflicts arising over land mm -hmm. where they're being hosted. And where they are, this land is actually also land which is being picked from these communities and with little uh, consensus built, sometimes with little compensation done for them. And some of this land that is being now used by refugees, for instance, for agriculture, for uh, gathering and doing of hunting and stuff, were previously hunting grounds. Some of them are actually sacred places, according to the population. I see. They are, they are places which they feel their ancestors reside in. Mm. They are places where they buried their loved ones. Mm. So all these kind of questions bring into light different transitional justice concerns mm -hmm. and needs that need to be addressed in this kind of situation. I'm sure Northern Uganda was not prepared to, to be hosting and yet another traumatized uh, population of forced migrants when they themselves are healing from their trauma mm -hmm. or yet to heal from their trauma. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether I don't, I'm yet to find out an experience where a victim of trauma can be in any way productive to a victim of another of, of trauma mm -hmm. elsewhere. So I think both of them require now the same kind of services. Mm -hmm. They require rehabilitation. They both require health support. Mm -hmm. So all this is also happening in a, a context of scarcity. They all have to strive for the same resources that are minimal. Land is not expanding mm -hmm. either in northern Uganda. I'll bet the numbers that are rising. Mm -hmm. The services being offered mm -hmm. are not expanding. We, we follow the, the refugee summit that was held in Uganda that did not uh, achieve its objective of getting all the funding it required to be able to uh, manage the refugee influx. What now tends to be the refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. So... I think these are some of the things that transition to justice need. We're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Jackson. Do you have any parting thoughts for us? Well, I think that um, this is a very important program, and I would want to encourage uh, all listeners to be able to, to listen to this kind of progressive reflections because they draw on wider experiences uh, around uh, the world. And, and I must say that the world as it is now is probably experiencing more conflict than it has ever experienced mm -hmm. before. 
and it should not be underestimated even though the there've been shifts and we know that the liberal thesis says that countries no longer go to war with mm-hmm. each other but countries are at war with it, with themselves communities are at war with each other mm-hmm. and all these conflicts are happening in the context of globalization mm-hmm. we cannot underestimate whatever is happening in the middle east mm-hmm. whose victims are now somewhere in the great lakes region as refugees mm-hmm. even though the world thinks that african immigrants are struggling to come to europe we know that there are many forced migrants that are getting to africa mm-hmm. you know from the conflicts that are happening in the middle east mm-hmm. so the world is not immune to the impact of conflict and therefore we should be able to take conflict as an important part and puzzle that needs to be reflected on and therefore addressed that's incredible thank you so much for your time jackson thank you I'm here with Shama Amps, and uh, he's studying governance and constitutional reform in countries emerging from civil war here at the Center of Development Studies. So thanks, Matt, for, for the intro. And uh, yeah, like he was saying, um, uh, I'm um, a third year PhD in the Center of Development Studies in Polis. Um, uh, I, my research focuses on legal reform in countries emerging from civil war. Specifically, I have four different case studies, Sri Lanka, Rwanda, Spain, and the United States. Um, I arrived at my research in governance and legal reform um, as a result of work I did at the State Department in the public sector, um, working as a Pickering Fellow in um, the State Department's Bureau of Legislative Affairs in Washington, D.C., and then second time around in uh, Brussels in uh, Belgium, uh, where I worked on science technology uh, research funding. Um, but yeah, now now I'm, I'm looking at, at this work um, and uh, um, closing out the PhD and hoping to to explore this this um, topic of citizenship um, in greater depth. Excellent. Thanks so much for, for joining us here on, on a Sunday as well. I really appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> so uh, Anything sh- for you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Shava. So we've been talking a little bit about, I mean, this came out of a, a book, I suppose, I have recently read, and we bumped into each other at the perfect time because you've been grappling with these questions already. Um, the book I'm referring to is called Right to Have Rights, and it's written by Degoy Hunt and, uh, and Samuel Moyne. And some of the questions that they are dealing with there is this concept of the right to have rights uh, in the Arendtian sense. So let's, let's just unpack this whole beast. Yeah. Um, so uh, like you said, that's, I think it was a really opportune time for us to, to meet and discuss because I think the refugee crisis that has spread across Europe um, and elsewhere um, has highlighted the fact that the role of the state is tremendously important in determining what it means to, to have rights in itself. And for a while, um, across the board, um, I guess in line with some of the liberal institutionalist perspectives to international governance, um, uh, across the board, I think, in the, among the international community, I think there was a feeling that there was the possibility in which rights could be uh, enumerated outside of the confines of the state. And now we're realizing the very, very hard limits of that in practice. Uh, and in reality, um, the international community has proven insufficient in being able to 
um, make meaningful any sense of human rights outside of the con- outside of the context and construct of the state, the nation state as broadly conceived. And so, um, what I, I, I uh, shared with you in terms of the notes was just a kind of a history, a kind of a narrative history of the emergence of the nation state um, as a social contract, and how this evolution kind of parallels different uh, you know uh, elements of citizenship. Um, both in a legal st- sense, but also in a sociocultural sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that that uh, history um, has kind of reached a confluence at this particular juncture mm-hmm. where we have the elements of globalization, um, you know, automization, uh, and uh, the whole idea of citizenship now becoming a matter of, uh, of, of, of almost a marketplace exchange whereby there are a number of countries that offer citizenship um, for for a dollar amount in the united states for example you can um, be uh, eligible for a specific kind of visa that enables you to um, to have a kind of a fast track to citizenship enabling you to get a green card um, by making uh, i think two hundred fifty thousand dollar contribution to real estate in a rural area and a million dollar contribution in an an urban area Mm -hmm. and we see different similar kind of policies across the the west being implemented so what does that now say about the nature of citizenship where um, individuals are now almost commodified by their ability to produce or to to contribute um, you know economically Mm -hmm. um, versus their inherent human rights uh, and then wh- what does this mean for refugees in this context now that we've reached this new permutation of an understanding of citizenship? Very interesting. So I'm, I'm sort of always baffled by this idea that you can just, you know, go in and buy yourself a way to citizenship, especially because it, it creates this situation in which only a certain kind of, of person from a certain kind of class, from a right. certain kind of background, mm-hmm. effectively, you know, trickle into to the United States of America. Exactly. Like, what does that mean? And how are you able to to overcome this massive barrier that is the marketization of, of citizenship? Yeah, and that's, I think, the, the paradox about refugees in particular um, is that very often, um, I, would, I think the data shows that it's more often than not, these individuals have a, a considerable degree of social capital. So these aren't very the most low-skilled individuals who are fleeing from these different countries. If you take the case of Syria, for example, many of the individuals who are fleeing from the country are doctors, uh, nurses, teachers, people with a lot of skills that would be useful elsewhere. Um, but because of the stigma associated with these refugees coming from countries that are war-torn um, and the existing stigmas about Muslim countries, mm-hmm. it's meant that... Um, that the political discourse surrounding refugees that are otherwise very high skilled and in normal circumstances would rank very high in immigration processes are now excluding them. Mm-hmm. So now they're left in, in kind of the, the double, you know, complicated situation whereby uh, in, in usual circumstances, if their country were functional, then they would be, been they would have been eligible to you know to apply for citizenship and would have received it in short order and 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 now that they're the state to which they had a social contract has now failed its own end of the bargain now they're left you know hanging to dry and um, they're left with the consequences um, and and the the kind of cascading stigmas and, and negative effects that come with that, so it's a really a big challenge for the international community. But it's it's one that I, I, it doesn't seem at present that the international community is uh, capable of of meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because uh, they've 
I think the international community has gone so far away from trying to understand the locus of the state that it's um, wound up um, in, in a difficult position. And mm-hmm. then, yeah. Do you think the international community would be more willing to accept refugees, so to speak, if there was, say, a sponsorship program in which, uh, say, a certain organization decides to put a, a, a specific amount of money behind a group of refugees or a family? I know this sounds yeah. perverse, but mm-hmm. but this sounds like this is the kind of direction that we're, we're, we're effectively moving into. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there there are some programs that try to integrate refugees um, into a society in which they're applying for a refugee status. Um, and that could be another fix, uh, because there are concerns um, uh, in different countries that are accepting refugees or not, that, um, that refugees would not culturally be able to assimilate, that they would not be comfortable, and that might cause social tension. Sure. So this kind of program, the way you're describing it, could be a way of creating a bridge between the refugees and the, the, the kind of cultural and, and so social context in which they're joining. Um, and also it would remove some of the stigma attached to refugees coming in because the stigma, or at least the stereotype, is that the refugees are somehow sapping you know, uh, precious government resources mm-hmm. from taxpayer money mm-hmm. and they're using that to sponge away and not produce anything. They're not, not being productive members of society. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that, that's not borne out by the facts and it's not, it's not true, but it is a very powerful stereotype that winds up affecting refugee situations. So perhaps a program like that would be a way of bridging um, that gap um, and creating the sense that they are kind of reintegrating into or integrating into the society and uh, removing some of the stigma attached to that usually. Let's say that this program goes through. Do you really think that it'll affect sort of people who may never have been exposed to a, to a refugee before? Doesn't citizenship go beyond simply what we are able to say in numbers and what we are able to guarantee in terms of programs, but it's actually a sort of a cultural shift that's required. Yeah, and I think that touches on some of um, what um, I was going to bring up in terms of the the different parallel tracks of citizenship that have taken place. Um, it's conceivable that a program like this won't be popular or it's not going to affect the broader narratives of citizenship, um, but it could be something that can be attempted to provide a, a tool by which not necessarily pub, the public in a given country that's accepting refugees will accept them, mm-hmm. but at least it's um, a first step that can be taken to create a sense that they're integrating or at least to, to give them more support mm-hmm. once they've, um, they've, um, they've started the process of seeking refugee status. Um, I think the, the sociological question is a more challenging one because it's embedded in centuries of history about essentialism and what it really means to be a citizen. Uh, and you know, even from beyond a legal standpoint, I think the law says has very specific criteria about what it means to be a citizen. Right. But then beyond that, you have kind of so- social um, uh, affirmations of what it means to be a citizen mm-hmm. and that those two things don't always correspond. So there have been many periods in history in which individuals are guaranteed rights on the books, and even now, but they don't, it's not really meaningful in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, in theory, uh, every citizen of a country in a democracy has the right to vote. Mm-hmm. But, for example, in the United States, um, for individuals who are um, lower income, who are African American, that right to vote is very precarious mm-hmm. because if, you find, if one finds themselves in a position where they are, um, you know, uh, 
arrested for having a certain amount of, of marijuana, and then <clears throat> they have a felony conviction, then they lose their right to vote. Um, if they live in a state in which there is a high level of voter suppression, um, then effectively, um, and they, they cannot, you know, uh, find their way to vote in the voting booths, um, or, you know, then, or their, their, their kind of, their, their driver's license, um, uh, DMV is, is shut down because from the same kind of voter suppression techniques, then effectively their right to vote has been curtailed. Um, and so that kind of speaks to the, the very real sense that there is a difference between the citizenship that's been spelled out to which people are legally entitled and to which they're actually entitled. Sure. Well, that's a really interesting uh, and important distinction to make. And I think that that brings us nicely around to a question that, that I think our audience might be asking themselves, particularly folks who aren't necessarily from a political studies or political science background. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, what is a social contract? Mm-hmm. And, and once we start untangling that phenomenon, how can we use our claim to have made a social contract with the government to effectively mm-hmm. also hold them to account? Yeah, so in many ways, the social contract is um, um, a legal fiction, but also it's um, a way of trying to understand the way in which society emerged and the the mechanism of understanding legitimacy, of understanding legitimacy um, of of, a, of government of governments and governance. Um, so there were some writers um, from the fifteenth and sixteenth centuries, Hobbes and Machiavelli who um, conceived of a social contract the way they saw it in their own societies, which were prone to a lot of war and chaos, as um, a bargain that was struck between a government, Machiavelli calls it the Leviathan, or a king or monarch of any kind, um, and citizens or subjects in this case. And the transaction was such that the citizens would give up certain rights in exchange for protection from a government. Um, And that scheme kind of was the basic modus operandi for states for the next couple hundred years. Um, The next permutation of the the social contract came in the 17th century where Locke, looking at his time um, where after the the English Civil War around the 17th century, there emerged a pact in which the different nations of the UK came together. And it seemed as though the social contract could have a less kind of grotesque and kind of negative uh, um, appearance and instead something that resembles more the Magna Carta whereby different factions voluntarily agree and it's not not as coercive as the Leviathan would appear to be. Uh, uh, Later on in the 19th century there were other you know theories in particularly during the Enlightenment period so the 18th 19th century um, that spread across Europe and North America that talked about um, the the importance of um, the individual and individual flourishing and that becoming the basis of citizenship and uh, particularly changing the locus of power from the state to the individual. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, um, the state took on even more responsibilities um, for providing accountability. And so the social contract, um, it took on even more dimensions and even as the government was responsible for providing more things. Um, in the 20th century, the mid to late 20th century, you had thinkers like Rawls and Nozick um, who were sort of trying to debate um, the extent to which this responsibility that has been now conceived of before the state um, would, would go. So 
would this would the state be responsible for providing essential services like healthcare, uh, infrastructure, um, a, a certain standard of living, which um, Rawls was sort of getting at with his uh, idea of the maximum principle and the veil of ignorance, etc. Or um, is it the case that as Nozick would claim, that the state's role is to just pr protect people's existing rights and to do nothing else. That is to say that the state is just a mechanism to protect one's negative rights, the right not to be killed, the right not to have one's property stolen. So this is very kind of harkening back to the Leviathan mm -hmm. conception mm -hmm. of the state. Um, and it's it tends to be a conception that favors those who have a kind of self-actualized um, uh, aspirations and those who tend to be quite well off, I would argue. Um, I'm sure Nozick would disagree with that, but <laughs> that's from my interpretation. Um, later on, in, in some of the literature that I've looked at for my own research in the 90s, um, the state now, the nature of the social contract has entered a new phase where the state now is responsible for providing um, economic growth and development. And that's the kind of thing that Peter Evans talks about in the mid-90s in his idea of embedded autonomy. So he talks about some of the, the themes that were brought up by um, even reaching back to Machiavelli and Hobbes, but also Max Weber, who I forgot to mention earlier, who talked about stuff, uh, talked about the, the nature of the state being, being um, a tied to effective bureaucracy and social services being reflected in that. He also had some notions about some sort of cultural um, uh, um, ideas that affect people, that, that affect the disparities in, in states' outcomes. Uh, which I kind of find to be problematic, but that's a separate question. Um, but Peter Evans talks about the nature of the states um, working within embedded autonomy and that bureaucracy has an important role to play in um, trying to form a link between institutions like the university, industries, and um, facilitating the provision of goods and services more broadly. And in that, <clears throat> and in that phase, I think that's where we exist in the 21st century, where um, the kind of themes that we discussed before about the nature of citizenship becoming marketized mm -hmm. find expression. So I think that it's from, from that lens that we can kind of understand how citizenship is now become marketized because the state itself has become subject to this, this lens of marketization mm -hmm. where people feel that a government must provide economic growth and must provide economic transformation in order for it to become legitimate. Right. Um, I think that explains a lot of why there is a lot of kind of right-wing populist mm -hmm. backlash. Mm -hmm. yep. In part, it's due to the state failing to provide the goods in the way it did in the mid-20th century after sure. the, the Second World War. Um, similarly, because now the state is being viewed from this lens um, of accountability, um, uh, citizenship has also been viewed through this economic lens. So, so we've gone through kind of the first permutation where the state was um, primarily a, a means of protection from physical harm to a second where the state was a protection of rights, a protector of rights, broadly defined, to a third where the state was um, <clears throat> is now supposed to be um, a protector of economic growth and right. economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, can the state actually do that? You know, can, does the state have the capacity to do that? Sure. Peter Evans talks about states like Japan and um, Korea as examples of the developmental state mm -hmm. that is able to transition from conflict into prosperity by using his theory of his, his institutional theory of embedded autonomy. But 
does this does this hold in the 21st century where increasingly there's globalization and automation and it remains to be seen if the state can actually deliver on economic growth mm -hmm. in this new frontier mm -hmm. and in this context that's how we understand um, citizenship so now citizenship is now being um, forced into this kind of cauldron of economic scrutiny where it was it is not the not the case that citizenship is now a matter of blood and soil or where you grew up or um, who you know, what your kind of ethnic composition was um, and even it's, it has less to do with where you, you know you're necessarily loyal to I mean if you look at some of the multinational companies they don't really feel fidelity to countries if right. they did then they wouldn't use aggressive tax avoidance techniques etc um, and so now it's the, the primary locus of control is in economics. Mm -hmm. And so now what, what does that mean for citizenship? And I think that's where the refugee crisis, I think, is um, indicative of this trend uh, because these individuals are particularly vulnerable because, because of a loss of social contract um, benefits as defined by the kind of very old social contract approach of protecting individuals and providing them a place to go and legitimacy in the international, international community, they've now lost economic power, which is crucial in the 21st century conception of citizenship. So what does this mean for, for citizenship and what does that mean for the social contract and the kind of obligation the state has to its people? If you say that it's in terms of growth, then what does a future look like for the social contract? And and what does it mean for tiered kinds of, um, of citizenship that I also know that, that you want to talk a little bit about? I think that in general, the international community, but also its um, composite states, needs to think creatively and reimagine the social contract. Mm -hmm. um, what and does that mean? So it, it means that they need to think beyond the kind of econo economic, the strict economic kind of neoliberal traditional mm -hmm. conception of uh, um, buying and selling citizenship or uh, measuring individuals on that level. Right. Um, and instead, they need to, the world or, you know, um, individuals within it, states, you know, international institutions um, should consider the, the necessity for creating a social safety net that accounts for some of the market failures in the sense that what I mean by market failures is the sense that, um, the market will not always provide individuals a job. It's, it's becoming a reality these days that the market will not succeed in doing what Peter Evans is suggesting is needed for a government to be legitimate. Sure. So in the absence of um, being able to provide everyone employment, um, there needs to be a fix. Mm -hmm. And some, some people have suggested um, the idea of a basic income, mm -hmm. um, and that's a potential solution that could... could um, fill the void of, at least in the short run. I have uh, grievances with this. Yeah, that's <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. That's fine. I mean, that's this just one answer, but it's not the it's not a silver bullet. Sure. Um, but the, the, the fact is that there, there needs to be another answer mm -hmm. rather than just letting pe feeding people to the dogs of the market yes. and letting letting things, the, the chips fall where they may. Sure. I think there needs, the state needs to develop a new capacity mm -hmm. um, in a, in kind of a, in a different permutation from what Peter Evans was suggesting, suge suggesting whereby it, um, it, it actually accounts for the fact that employment itself is not reliable. So sure. there needs to be another way in which people can make social contributions, um, either maybe volunteering or providing services um, and, and finding different sectors in which to work. 
um, and getting training potentially um, while they're, you know, that is they're working um, temporarily and then getting training in different sectors. Um, these are all different possibilities that the state could explore and should explore. Sure. Um, and I think it should become part of its responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I, I think more or less the state will have to, mm-hmm. to assume this role yeah. in this coming century. Um, yeah. And then in terms of the second thing about the tiers, um, I, I think it does it, it does um, affect this this kind of marketization has um, it has complicated the way in which the tiers of citizenship was were t- traditionally construed. Sure. And what I mean by that is that um, even as um, you know market forces, multinational corporations have kind of liberated themselves from the traditional shackles, or not shackles, but controls of the state. They would argue that they're shackles, but (laughs) controls of the state and reins of the state. Um, Individuals from across the world, Mm -hmm. um, from developing countries and elsewhere, um, elites from these different countries have liberated themselves from the limitations of their own passports. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that... um, people who've amassed their wealth through legitimate means, sometimes through illegitimate means, um, can use their economic power to go anywhere in the world to buy an American passport, to buy a British passport, and to hide their money in, you know, London real estate or in the Cayman Islands. Um, This is the new frontier of citizenship um, for the elites. But for those who fall below that, um, there is a very inherent tension. So, you have um, the deindustrialization of, of a lot of these communities across the spectrum, especially in the West. Um, and that has created um, a significant pressure on governments to provide services that they're not really placed to do. At the same time, um, governments are now trying to attract um, foreign direct investment and other kinds of sources of income, in part through facilitating things like um, this this EB-5, I think the EB-5 visa in the mm-hmm. U.S. that mm-hmm. enables individuals to spend a certain amount on real estate or some other kind of investment sure. in order to have a fast track of citizenship. Yeah. And and then that begs the question as to what, what the traditional role of citizenship is in that context, because... Um, it is the case that among some of this kind of populist, ethno-nationalist uprising um, that, that we've experienced for the past decade or so, that it is in part a reaction to globalization mm-hmm. and the realization that the, the economy is not providing the traditional services and the traditional relationship that it did in the 1950s, mm-hmm. where the, the, the government was essentially providing the goods. Right. And that those goods were kind of provided within the sort of spectrum of power um, that felt comfortable for those who were kind of situated in that um, position where they can enjoy first-class citizenship. And that wasn't the case for those who were in the second-class citizenship for women, minorities, etc. They had to take the table scraps. But now that deindustrialization has occurred um, and these communities um, that once enjoyed first-class citizenship are finding that their citizenship has been downgraded from their own perspective, from the standpoint of the state not providing the goods, that has kind of left them in a position where they need the, where they found the need to find a scapegoat. Sure. Uh, and so immigrants um, who might be in the same boat 
working to try to for working against the forces of capitalism to try to secure a living are scapegoats immigrants all of these individuals you know unfortunately become the easiest targets mm-hmm. because uh, it appears that these individuals are benefiting from government largesse right. um, ergo the refugees um, versus the, the fact the clear fact that these individuals are having to battle the most difficult circumstances just to be in a position where they can experience, you know, this, the kind of same uh, standard of living that they were accustomed to in their, their former country. Um, so that, I think that's where the disconnect happens. And I think that's part of the reason why there is a tension um, nowadays. You can't quite disentangle the cultural and the social element from citizenship entirely when mm-hmm. we're talking about how economics is the next frontier. Yeah. So what do you think is a synthesis there that can help us navigate these murky waters? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't claim to have the answer to <laughs> the citizenship sociological question. Um, but I, I do think you're touching on an important point here. Um, that is that um, when it comes to um, the extent to which citizenships that is written, inscribed in law is actually meaningful, there is often a divergent in divergence and that divergence is created in part through social conception of what it really means to be a citizen Mm -hmm. Um, just because a person is legally Danish doesn't mean that they're actually Danish Um, and uh, and and that has I think is embedded in some of the sociological uh, ideas of of who people see themselves as who are they you know what is their social identity I mean Samuel Huntington talks about how people you know the question of who who are we um that's that's something that hasn't really been answered in the 21st century and it's still in the process of being answered um and i think oftentimes there is a desire um especially among those like i mentioned among those who kind of fit into the category of individuals who once enjoyed first-class citizenship based on their relationship with the state where the state was providing them resources and economic growth and providing them jobs and security and they in turn had enjoyed the benefits of representation, etc. To want to return to almost like a 19th century or 18th century conception of mm-hmm. citizenship that emerges from a sense of ethnic cohesion or socioeconomic, you know, sort of socio-ethnic cultural cohesion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure that these individuals really kind of know what what that means in general because sure. I think, and I'm not. That's not to say that's not to sound condescending or anything, but that they just it doesn't. Most people haven't studied the the emergence of the Weimar Republic and what it means sure. to be a citizen sure. in that regard. But broadly speaking, I think there's often um, a lack of awareness um, that that is that is that happens time and time again despite history repeating itself. Um, among a new generation of immigrants that were once castigated and were once um, uh, uh, not accepted in the broader society, when a new wave of immigration immigrants come, yeah, then they give them they proceed to give them the same treatment sure. that their generation or their parents received, um, uh, and this happens across the board. I mean, I, I'm most familiar with my the, the U.S. and and what how that's happened. Where, for example, in New York. Um, the first wave of immigrants who came um, to a country that was inhabited by Native Americans were the English, and then came the Irish, and of course they were given a significant amount of gruff, and they weren't considered real citizens, they weren't considered real Americans. Um, 
they, you know, in many ways they were considered like the Negroes of Europe and, uh, and they didn't say Negroes. <laughs> and, and then, then after a few generations, then came the Italians and then, you know, the Italians were to buy the Irish in some instances were kind of given the same treatment that the English gave to the Irish and the English in turn gave to the Italians. And then you look at the next generation of the Chinese immigrants, uh, you know, the same thing happens to them. And then the Vietnamese and then the Puerto Ricans, it just goes on and on and sure, on. Sure. And not realizing that every, everyone in this context, you know, at least in the Western hemisphere is a descendant of an immigrant. Um, in the context of Europe, um, I think a defining moment was in the Second World War, where there was there was kind of a, an existential contest between um, blood and soil, represented by the Nazis, and the Allies, who said, no, not blood and soil, <laughs> um, something else. Uh, they didn't really define what the something else was, because there was a great deal of hypocrisy in their own countries, and... There was segregation, etc., and there was the denial of citizenship to those in their society that didn't resemble the stereotype or the majority ethnic, um, you know, um, uh, profile of what it meant to be a citizen. Nevertheless, geopolitically and otherwise, one could argue even philosophically, they felt that compelled to fight and to defeat the idea of blood and soil. Mm -hmm. um, so the Nazis were defeated the West professed to have uh, an enlightened view of citizenship that's predicated in the rule of law, not in the rule of ethnicity. Um, but that, that sort of scheme has, you know, had, has not always been implemented in practice. Mm -hmm. And it's taken a very long time, even if the law says one thing about a citizen, for, the, for the, 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 the society to actually believe it and to implement it. And there's always been a scattered implementation um, across the spectrum. And people always try to point to, you know, um, the segregated South in the U.S. or apartheid South Africa and claim that this is just a very kind of segmented problem. But in fact, many, many, many countries across the spectrum have had this challenge when you're having an ethnic majority um, um, that's traditionally kind of thought of itself in the kind of Huntington self a, a sense as a citizen and then having this, having this sense of citizenship challenged. Mm -hmm. Um, um, with different forces of globalization, etc. And then how do they kind of deal with that? How do they navigate that in a way that, that doesn't betray their professed values? Mm -hmm. we, we talk about this a lot from the perspective of, of Denmark, when since the emergence of the welfare state, there's mm -hmm. been this claim to that welfare state by one particular dominant ethnic group. And the question is, how do we transition from that onto not an ethnic, ethnic kind of nationalism, but mm -hmm. a civic Right. Kind of nationalism, right? The kind that we think is 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 what Canada's got going on, yeah. but, but maybe not. Yeah, I, I think that it's um, it's it's challenging. I mean, but it it does seem as though um, there is movement from the kind of traditional kind of ethnic conceptions of the state, and part of it is just the necessities of mar of the marketplace that are placing demands on states to produce in ways that they haven't been able to do so. Um, you know, a, a state is required to produce economic growth, but this is almost an impossible task. And so that means that they can't really be picky about which immigrants they're taking money from. Right. <laughs> so in, in some ways that has created some pressure 
that's enabled citizenship to evolve. So now um, it's 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 a question of um, which citizens are skilled, right. you know, skilled enough to become a member and, 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 and also familiar enough with the broad cultural ideas of the country that enables a person to become a citizen, mm-hmm. legally defined. Um, but is that actually a meaningful concept in practice? I think that's the slower question. That's a slower concept that requires like the some sort of elements that you pointed out, you know, people joining things, people being kind of coexisting, co- not cohabitating in the sense of living in the same house, but cohabitating in the sense of living in the same neighborhood and being exposed to each other and joining social groups. And um, there's some research that suggests that um, it may not even be enough to do that, uh, that sometimes by making people live in the same neighborhood, they just, you know, they can't stand each other. But I think that the trick is to make people feel as though there's some kind of mutual dependence. Mm-hmm. And I think some of what, um, what is what some of the, the kind of reports that, that have been, that have come out about, for example, once Donald Trump was elected mm-hmm. and there were a lot of, um, uh, immigration raids on, on, um, on some properties, for example, in, in Texas, sure. um, among communities that overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump. Once they saw that members of their own community that they identified with, who they went to work with, who right. they who, who you know who took their kids to school, etc., mm-hmm. were being dragged away from their families and sent back to a country that they're not familiar with, that kind of impressed upon them the consequences. The so maybe not you know if you if you're gonna be chari- you know charitable, you could say the unintended consequences of voting for a person like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that kind of embeddedness could potentially um, bridge the gap and make less foreign people who are indeed part of the citizen citizenship or part of the citizenry. And, um, and it, it makes it less of an imagined community in the way Anderson describes it and more of a kind of concrete community. And let's hope people move in that kind of direction. So last, last question for you, Shama. Um, Give me your tired and your poor, or give me your elite and your rich, and let's just expo- expel the uh, the tired and the poor. Like what what is what is happening? I I don't see a rigid I don't see a rigid distinction between those two people: okay. tired, poor, rich, elite. I mean, of course, the rich and elite are historically don't need anyone to help them. <laughs> they, they they will always find a way. <laughs> but it's not a coincidence, for example, that. I mean, I'm relying a lot on the U.S. as a case study just because I'm very familiar with it. But it occurs across the board where you find immigrant communities that are fleeing from wars, fleeing from really terrible situations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was um, Steve Jobs' parents who were refugees, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they're Madeleine Albright's, um, our former Secretary mm-hmm. of State. Her parents were refugees um, from the Second World War. And, you know... It's and, and they've achieved amazing things. They've made significant, tangible contributions that are very much part of and parcel of what it means to be uh, a member of or a citizen of that country, what it means to be American, what it means to be Danish. Uh, I'm sure there are, for example, a, a number of different um, Lebanese diaspora living elsewhere or Somalian diaspora, etc., who are making very important contributions in, in the countries in which they find themselves. And so while it is, you know, uh, some would argue, at least from the countries that are exporting these diaspora, uh, regrettable that these individuals have chosen to flee or to leave and under dif- difficult circumstances, 
Um, the flip side of that is that the recipient countries are uh, uh, enjoying a significant amount of economic, social, capital, and benefit from that. That I think is is worth um, noting. That's that's not very clear, but it's not the case isn't made very well. That you know, refugees and the poor, the tired, etc., are more often than not are the among the most motivated and the people who are most determined to make it. And you know, if if a person has the determination to to kind of sneak uh, across the border with you know drones flying above head, or you know go on a ver- really uh, you know rickety dinghy boat across the Mediterranean, then this person conceivably would have the determination to do what it takes to to make it economically. You know, if given the chance, and that's not. I mean, that's just not a liberal fiction. That's something that's actually borne out, and yeah. these individuals have actually wound up making significant consequential um, um, contributions in their society that they find themselves in. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today, Sean. Of course, a pleasure. pleasure. Yeah. Any parting thoughts? Um, yeah. So we were talking about the idea of the weaponization of citizenship, and I think that has um, found expression particularly in the case of Sri Lanka, where. Um, the state has used its power to confer citizenship as, as a mechanism to exclude and deprive individuals who are part of the losing side of that conflict um, to lose their, their rights. So um, um, the conflict was between the Sinhalese and the Tamils, and the Tamils were um, uh, kind of formed a group called the, the LTTE, the Liberation Tamil Tigers of Elam. And um, that group... Um, formally, I think, started in the 70s, but um, I argue that the, the emergence of the Tamil Tigers has a lot to do with some of the, the discriminatory policies um, that were passed in the aftermath of independence in Sri Lanka in the 1950s, especially to do with the idea of language rights. So there was a bill passed in 1956 um, um, that essentially said that Tamil, the Tamil language would not be able to be used in, um, in the courts or in... Um, uh, public administration or in education, and that's inherently put Tamils at a disadvantage. They weren't able to access public services. They weren't able to be educated in their mother tongue. They were at a significant disadvantage when it comes to court proceedings, and it was indicative of the kind of idea um, of uh, having a tiered citizenship, where they were obviously second-class citizens or worse, and um, they were kind of the, the fact that. Um, there was no the, the the elite bargain that existed to transition Sri Lanka from British colonization between the Tamil elites and the Sinhalese elites um, broke down and there was no longer a political profit in the Sinhalese cooperating with the Tamils and and that created the impetus for these discriminatory policies that uh, in part the Tamil Tigers were um, uh, try to, or at least I don't think they were necessarily redressing these grievances effectively, but I think that it's not a coincidence that um, they emerged in the aftermath, or at least in this context of discriminatory policies that the government implemented. And what that meant for, um, once the, the wars the war was ended, um, uh, it had a series of different iterations, but what it meant effectively when the war uh, concluded was that um, some of the Tamils who were brought um, from from uh, British India 
um, um, during the time the British controlled India um, to harvest um, uh, tea and other kinds of a coffee and some other kinds of uh, produce, uh, they were left in legal limbo because um, the Indian the Indian government didn't necessarily want them. Um, the Sri-, Sri Lankan government didn't want to recognize them. Um, and so that was a significant touch point of um, difference between the North and the South um, that played itself out. Um, and um, it, it co- kind of goes alongside um, a trajectory in which the state has used its power to confer the rights of citizenship on, legally, but also socio- sociologically onto individuals, but also to deprive them of those rights. Um, and um, Sri Lanka is one case, there are a number of different cases um, one could argue even the Spanish case study that I've looked at um, to a lesser extent, but it occurred where um, the, the, the province of Catalonia was excluded um, during the period of Francisco Franco after the Republicans were, were defeated by the fascists or the, 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 I think they were just called the fascists, I don't know exactly what the other name was at the moment, but after they were defeated by the, the side that won. Um, uh, the, they there was there were there were policies that prevented Catalan Catalan from being spoken in public life and from people being educated in, in Catalonia, and there were a number of individuals, uh, um, th- there were a number of police and others who, when they heard the language the Catal- Catalans being spoken in public life, they said no, don't speak Catalan, speak the language of the empire, speak the language the Spanish language, the Spanish language of the empire. And, um, you know, and you see some of these grievances that were left unresolved, um, deliberately unresolved in Spain by, you know, the, the kind of pact that was developed during the transition to democracy in the 70s, um, that they won't talk about what happened in the Civil War and what happened afterward, that these things are now finding expression in, in the political space. And Catalan, you know, one could argue that some of the, the unaddressed questions from the Civil War and the transition are now motivating what the Catalan are now, the kind of Catalan independence movements that the, the Catalan now see the kind of activities of the Spanish government as another expression of the, this tendency to try to consolidate power and to exclude minority cultures. Um, and, you know, you can see that in, in many different countries, but those are just two examples. That's all, folks. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Declarations. You can find us on social media on Facebook. Um, we'll be at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast or on our Twitter handle at declarationspod. If you have any ideas or would like to pitch uh, an episode, please send us an email at editor at declarationspod.com. We're really keen on hearing more from you guys. And if you have any comments or any questions that you'd like to pose to our audience, please do tweet them at us or send us a message on Facebook or on email. Thanks for tuning in. See you soon. Hello and welcome to Declarations. I'm Sarah Mohammed. And I'm Matt Mahmoudi. And this is the Declarations of Pop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. F, no, F for effort. F for effort. <laughs> F. F for effort. Boo. Ah, I love that. Off with her head. <laughs> <laughs>